Hello, and welcome to this Latrobe Asia webinar, Fighting Fake News in a Time of COVID-19. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who might be watching this webinar this evening. Part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted how the spread of fake news and misinformation online can adversely affect domestic and global public health efforts, contribute to social unrest and undermine democracy and public trust in institutions. Governments across the world have taken different approaches to responding to this rise of misinformation, disinformation and fake news online. In her landmark new study titled Fighting Fake News, a study of online misinformation regulation in the Asia-Pacific, Associate Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University examines how Singapore and Indonesia have responded to these issues. As early adopters of fake news laws, governments of these countries have sought to crack down on COVID-19 misinformation uh, and the real-world violence and hate speech aimed at minority and religious groups. However, human rights experts and freedom of speech advocates fear that these laws are also open to political misuse. So why exactly is fake news or online misinformation a problem in a time of COVID-19? How have different governments sought to deal with this and have they taken the right approach? And do such laws and regulations risk undermining democracy instead of bolstering it? I am delighted to be joined by our esteemed panel of experts to unpack these crucial issues. Uh, first, the report's author, Dr. Andrea Carson, joins us this evening from Melbourne, where she is an Associate Professor in Journalism in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Andrea is a globally recognised expert in media and politics and formerly a journalist. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Beck, and thank you for that lovely introduction. We are also joined by Dr. James Gomez, who is the Regional Director of Asia Centre in Bangkok, and he has a long academic history in Australia and Asia uh, of uh, looking at journalism and communication and writing on civil society, democracy, human rights and new media. Great to have you here with us, James. Thank you, Beck. Thanks for having me here, and congratulations to Andrea on her new report. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Dirk Thompson is also an Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University in the Discipline of Politics. Dirk's research focuses on politics and democracy in Southeast Asia. Thanks for being with us, Dirk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. 
We did have a fourth panellist, but unfortunately, Kirsten Hahn was unable to join us this evening. Uh, we will have time for Q&A in the second half of this uh, webinar, for which we will be using the Q&A function. Uh, so please, throughout the session, feel free to pop your questions uh, using the Q&A function down the bottom of your Zoom screen. But let's get into it. Uh, Andrea, I'll start with you first. Uh, congratulations on the report. It is based on some serious in-depth research that you have undertaken in the region. Uh, and before we start digging into your key findings, though, I'm hoping that you might be able to start us off with some context. I feel like we hear a lot about misinformation, disinformation, fake news, but what is it that these different terms are describing and why have they become such an important issue, particularly in the time of COVID-19? Thank you, Beck, and thanks to everyone for joining us this evening or afternoon, depending where you're joining from. It won't be a surprise to this audience um, who I imagine already have some knowledge about fake news. In fact, we all do because it surrounds us online. It's become a modern day scourge. But one of the key problems is that the term fake news is a rather vague one. It's an umbrella term and it encompasses misinformation, disinformation and also um, malinformation, malicious information. And they're very distinct things. Um, it's also sometimes called hoaxes, as is the case in Indonesia, or false news. And essentially what we're dealing with is forms of mistruths online, except for the example of malicious information, which tends to be true information which is used for spread with ill intent for malicious purposes. So I'll try and unpack some of those terms, but I will say at the start there's no universal agreement on these and reporters, journalists, academics and the platforms themselves tend to think about these terms a little bit differently. I think one of the leaders in the field in defining what fake news is has been first draft with Claire Waddell with their typology, which looks at two things, the manifestations of how fake news presents itself, and they have a scale of how damaging that is from, um, say, satire on one end to disinformation at the other being the more harmful content. And they also look at what motivates people to be spreading this type of false information online, and that can vary from monetary motivations um, such as the Macedonian teenagers that set up those fake news stories during the 2016 US election that made a lot of money out of clickbait, or it can be um, for political interference, such as some of the Russian false information that penetrated Europe in 2015 and was the catalyst for the European Union developing their code of practice against disinformation. Or it can also um, be for pranking people, uh, I think in the US it's called punking, there's a lot of different motivations. And even though First Draft has done a lot of great work in being able to tease these things out, uh, and I, I recommend those who haven't looked at their work to do so, to look at that typology, COVID-19 showed us a reason to re-examine some of these definitions. And that was because misinformation, which was generally understood to be information that was false, that was spread with ill intent, and disinformation was false information that was spread with intent to cause harm, either financial or political, 
What COVID showed us was that people might spread false information with ill intent, but it can still cause real world harm. And a good example of that is some of the treatments that have been floating around on the internet about how to deal with um, COVID. It could be now as we enter into the next stage of the pandemic, dealing with vaccinations and a lot of the misinformation around vaccination. So intent is not necessarily the best measure of being able to engage the level of harm. The platforms themselves tend to deal with actions and actors. So they look at the way that misinformation, disinformation is presented on their platforms and they have what they consider to be authentic users and inauthentic users. And authentic users are people like us that are sharing information with friends and family. Inauthentic users, though, tend to be um, actions that you can tell are not designed just to be sharing information with friends, things like super posters who might cut and paste the same phrase a thousand times and send it out into the ether. Uh, Those actions trigger warning signs that this is not authentic content or an authentic user. And bot behaviour, of course, fits into this type of description. They also look at harm in terms of disinformation and will treat it differently to misinformation. And typically, Platforms like Facebook have had different teams that deal with misinformation compared to disinformation. And again, COVID has shown us that this could be problematic because harmful misinformation can fall through the cracks if it's not elevated in the way that disinformation is. Because under Facebook's own policies, misinformation generally isn't taken down because of their commitment to freedom of speech. It might be the algorithm on it might be turned down so it's not shared as widely, whereas disinformation will be taken down. And COVID changed this policy due to um, the dangers and the harms that misinformation can cause. And just to give an example of Iran, where um, misinformation around a treatment of COVID, and I won't be irresponsible by uh, saying what that treatment was, this false treatment, led to 800 deaths and about 5,000 hospital admissions. So misinformation can be very harmful, it can be deadly, and the platforms revised their policies because of this and will, under some circumstances, take down misinformation as well. So I guess um, to sum up, we don't have universal definitions and that's a problem. It's a problem because fake news is an issue that requires multi-pronged approaches and by uh, necessity, lots of stakeholders being involved. And so they need to know that they're dealing with the same problem. Uh, And without a common definition, they might be working at cross purposes. Um, So I might leave it there to start with, but I think that gives us an idea of the boundaries of this conversation and just how complex it is. Yeah, I think that one of the things that your report does, uh, Andrea, is provide uh, that information very clearly, uh, that there are these different terms, and you've explained that um, really well in the report, but you mentioned uh, freedom of speech in your response there, and the report, of course, looks at the ways that governments have sought to regulate misinformation, disinformation and fake news, uh, primarily Singapore and Indonesia. But there is, of course, this tricky balance between uh, ensuring public trust in information uh, and in public health policy on the one hand, but also uh, defending 
freedom of expression, freedom of speech on the other hand. So uh, what does your report demonstrate about how governments have uh, sought to negotiate uh, this seeming tension uh, between these sort of two issues? So it's a great question, Beck, and it goes to the real heart of how you deal um, as a government and a society with misinformation and disinformation. And I should say at the outset that the research was through a Facebook grant and it comes through the lens of an Australian researching um, with a liberal democratic lens. One of the chapters is focused, uh, I, I guess, a catalyst for looking at what's going on with near neighbours is that Australia was developing a misinformation code, a disinformation code of practice, a voluntary code, which has just been released in the last couple of weeks. And this research was looking at the 12 months leading up to that to inform the policy debates around mis and disinformation and how to manage it. So because it's looking at it through that democratic lens, this won't apply to perhaps how other countries and governments and peoples might consider some of these topics. But the tension that's there for a democracy that needs to be carefully managed is to foster an environment where this freedom of expression is upheld, but also to prevent it being weaponized in a way and which the Wadal um, typology that I talked about before describes very well how it, how it can be weaponized, that it's not weaponized to deceive, to manipulate and to harm others. In other words, it's a tension between free, responsible speech and government overreach. And at present, there's been about 20 countries that have taken actions against fake news and the early adopters, and, and they do this in three different ways. And there's some wonderful research at RMIT by James Mees that's looked at this. It's broken it down into three different ways that governments around the world have responded. They've gone the legislated approach, which is laws against outlawing fake news. They've gone the regulatory, voluntary or mandatory approach, which is where the EU has landed and where Australia is currently at. And then there's other activities that governments have done, such as uh, that are not mutually exclusive, such as Indonesia by having fact-checking units uh, and doing media literacy campaigns, and lots of governments have done those as well. And uh, the Australian response has been mindful about looking at these tensions between government overreach, one would hope, and between regulating um, what is free speech. And at the moment it's landed on that voluntary code, bringing the different platforms together. I think there's about eight or nine that have come together so far, such as Facebook, Google, TikTok, to name a few. Uh, but it's very new and we don't know how it's going to work just yet because it's only just got up and running. And we can look to the European experience, um, which got their disinformation code up in 2018. But I think what is notable at this point is because COVID-19 illuminated those definitional issues, the uh, difficult, well, the approach that the EU took was to have a disinformation code of practice our regulator for the traditional media, um, the ACMA, have uh, their remit under an ACCC review that was done, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, back in 2017 to 2019, asked for a disinformation code and the different platforms were coming together to develop a disinformation code. 
One of the things that I'm pleased to see is that the language changed between October last year and when the code was released uh, February the 22nd this year, where it's now called a misinformation and disinformation code. And I think that's in recognition that misinformation also causes real world, world harm. And the only other thing I would add to that, um, and I'm sure we'll get into plenty of discussion around this, is that those countries that have chosen the harder direct route of legislating fake news laws, the, they, the early adopters, they tend to be countries that Freedom House and other um, institutes would label as not being democratic or only being partially free. And Indonesia and Singapore fall into that category and they've both got uh, it, these fake news laws in the form of POFMA in Indonesia and the IT Act um, in 2016 in Indonesia. It might be a good time to bring James into the conversation here, particularly talking about um, government overreach, because the Asia Centre has also recently produced some important reports on COVID-19 and democracy uh, or civil liberties uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly looking at the ways in which governments have used COVID-19 to, uh, as a cover, I guess, for increasing their grip uh, over citizens and rolling back some of those political liberties. So, James, I mean, do you think that is what is happening in the case of Indonesia and Singapore with these um, fake news laws uh, or with the use of regulations to combat fake news more generally across Southeast Asia? Thanks, Meg, and congratulations again to Andrea. Uh, Asia Centre has been working in, in the freedom of expression space, and we've been, you know, having conversations in this space in the last year and, uh, and a half around COVID, in particular, looking at, you know, issues of disinformation, fake news, hate speech, uh, freedom of religion and belief. Uh, from our work, uh, we, we've seen four handles governments in the region use uh, to justify, you know, any form of legislation uh, towards uh, containing, you know, uh, fake news. Uh, one would be, you know, uh, clickbait disinformation. Uh, more, most jurisdictions uh, give their government support because people are generally annoyed uh, by these kinds of information. So, you know, having some kind of legislation or, you know, positive practices to deal with it, uh, it has some support. Uh, the other one is around disinformation uh, uh, that creates hate, especially using markers such as race and religions and sometimes gender and LGBTIQ identities. Uh, so again, you know, the state often not referring to gender or LGBTIQ markers would focus on, um, you know, markers such as race and religion and say, look, we'll need to manage the, uh, these uh, disinformation that leads to the mobilization of hate. And again, you will see to some extent, you know, some uh, populations, especially if they are diverse ones, uh, may be, you know, uh, willing to, you know, uh, trade some liberties uh, uh, towards in this space. A slow and emerging area, not directly relevant to Southeast Asia is uh, a foreign disinformation, uh, disinformation campaigns run by governments. So uh, uh, the thing that is most marked in the larger Asia-Pacific region is Taiwan. I think there are some limited conversations about this um, in Australia. So this is the role of China. Now, um, 
government have not articulated China as a uh, as a foreign government, you know, uh, peddling disinformation. But Singapore has articulated the need for legislation in this area. Last but not least, and this is the one that is most contentious, is uh, political disinformation. And uh, clear examples are what, what is happening in Thailand. Some years ago, we will be speaking about, you know, the red camp and the yellow camp. And these days we speak about the liberal camp and the royalist camp. So there's a lot of, you know, disinformation, you know, used for the purposes of uh, political mobilization. So how have states, you know, um, uh, you know, responded to it in terms of legal measures? Uh, some states, you know, who are a bit slow to get off the bat, use existing laws. Uh, most of the handles they, they reach out to are within the penal code. Uh, sometimes they may use national security laws or sedation acts. Uh, but the, the couple of countries that have been mentioned um, uh, have come up with, you know, dedicated disinformation law or fake news laws. Um, um, they, they can also be termed as cybercrime laws. And, and therein lies the problem because, you know, it's fake news according to whom? And it's the state that defines it and is very vaguely defined. And also in that definition, the state gives itself impunity because in the larger domain of fake news creators, the state is the principal creator of fake news. I think because we are in the era of COVID, I think it will be helpful if we also sh uh, shine a spotlight on uh, the COVID-19 temporary laws and also emergency laws, some of which have been updated. So here, you know, I refer to the recent, recent development just days ago in Malaysia's emergency law where there's a dedication, dedicated section on fake news and also what's happening uh, in Myanmar and the proposed cybercrime law. So you will find that under the cover of COVID temporary legislation um, in this, uh, for the sake of fighting infodemic and, and to have trustworthy uh, COVID-19 health uh, uh, advisories, uh, these laws are used. Now, they are used primarily against critiques uh, about the mismanagement of COVID-19. So governments are very, very quickly uh, when they are criticized, among other things, you know, their mismanagement of COVID-19. So governments with the impunity, with the ability to use vaguely worded uh, laws, um, use it as a weapon uh, and a tactic against their body of critiques that include um, academics, civil society actors, uh, uh, opposition uh, uh, politicians and, and journalists. Um, I'll just stop here, and that's kind of broadly, you know, uh, what Asia Center has been, you know, involved in in terms of conversation in the last year and a half. Thank you. I think you've raised some really important points about the risks. This idea that you know the state itself can be a creator of fake news, uh, being one important point, I think. Uh, and you've really articulated, I think, some of the the risks. Uh, around the regulation and dangers to uh, civil and political liberties. But I'm wondering, in your view, uh, how can governments shore up trust in information and institutions, particularly in terms of public health and public health policies, without damaging or without eroding or undermining 
human rights and civil liberties? Yeah. You know, we wish uh, in, in an ordinary world and in a hopeful world that, you know, governments will do the right thing and actually do uh, take positive measures really to, you know, um, sharpen, shape their message appropriately, that it, it builds trust. But I, I, I think they are more worried about the impact uh, of criticism on their reputation and their capacity to stay in power. So they are not so much concerned about building trust, I guess, by shutting out the noise in their uh, opinion, uh, noise, which is really criticism about their mismanagement, both in terms of COVID-19, given the context we are in, and they want to sort of close off and kill off the critics. And this is where the law is being used. But what we are seeing right now uh, through the work at Asia Center is there is a shift happening and it has been very marked by what has been happening in Myanmar because all along, you know, um, colleagues with whom we have been having conversations about disinformation and fake news, we all have focused on the content, you know, the state's concern about, you know, false content and how to regulate it either by law or through non-legal measures. However, I think the states had enough because they are tired, it's resource heavy, and they are not making an impact. So now they are moving on to looking at controlling the infrastructure. And this is what we see very vividly being played out uh, in the public space in Myanmar. So they're doing two things. They are doing um, the internet shutdown, and they are also doing uh, the throttling of internet speeds. So I think moving forward, uh, I think this is what we are going to see. So they are going to keep a handle on managing content through legislation, but they are also going to you know, adjust their legislation to give them powers to control the infrastructure. Now, this has not come into the public domain because countries such as Vietnam um, and Cambodia, uh, Vietnam in particular has you know, had a go at it, but and, and Myanmar was, you know, using it um, uh, in conflict, in specific location in Rakhine and Chin states for about 19 months. But with the first September coup, it has broadened it uh, intermittently in the first two weeks, now regularly every evening uh, for the last three weeks. And, I, and my concern here is this new measure may become the type of digital regime of control that states in Southeast Asia and elsewhere would be looking to add on in addition to content regulations. Thank you, Greg. We might come back uh, to that issue of the digital regime of control uh, a little bit later, but I did want to turn to Dirk. I mean, you're an expert on politics in Southeast Asia. What is your take on the report's findings? Are you surprised or does this kind of fit your expectations with what these two governments or how these two governments might respond to uh, misinformation, disinformation and fake news online? Uh, and does the, the issue of, of misinformation and, and, and fake news, does it intersect with other social and political issues that are, are occurring within these countries? Yeah, thanks, Beck. And um, let me join James in congratulating Andrea for the excellent report. Um, so if you ask me if there was anything in there that surprised me, 
Um, I have to say, yes, there were a couple of things um, that, that did surprise me. The overall thrust, I think, was not surprising uh, for anyone following um, Indonesian politics or Singaporean politics. Um, the use of legislation, the sort of punitive approach to these kinds of issues when social harmony is concerned, when um, religious issues are concerned, um, has been yeah, has been a hallmark of the politics there for quite some time. But um, let me start with briefly with a couple of things perhaps where I was a bit surprised and um, then come back to perhaps the, the broader assessment of why overall it's not so surprising. And that is in fact linked to the broader issues that you're alluding to. Um, surprised I was um, in the case of Singapore that Andrea had worked out quite interestingly that the main opposition party, if we can speak of a main opposition party in Singapore, uh, the Workers' Party has apparently hardly been targeted um, in the government's um, efforts to sort of use legislation to silence critics. Um, that I found interesting because in the last um, few years in elections, the Workers' Party has been able to um, sort of consolidate, uh, you know, a, a small but sizable basis and has been acknowledged as a potential, you know, source for opposition. And yet, apparently, when it comes to the government's efforts of using legislation to clamp down on fake news, on uh, misinformation, disinformation, um, it hasn't used that as a weapon to target the Workers' Party. That I was a bit surprised to read about. Um, so that was interesting, I found, and uh, maybe in the Q&A, we can come back to that later on. James, of course, has lots of links to Singapore. You may have a view on this, too. Um, in the Indonesian context, what surprised me was to read about the sort of the diverse range of um, strategies that are actually in place, because some of them are not so widely reported as others. Um, if you read about misinformation and disinformation in Indonesia, you will read a lot about what James was talking about earlier, about the state actually being a main source of disinformation. Um, sometimes um, it's portrayed as if that's a state response to misinformation that comes from elsewhere and it's become a sort of tit for tat between two sides of politics. Um, but it is quite clear if we look at the developments in Indonesia in the last few years, that state actors, um, and especially during um, election campaigns, um, political party actors, the consultants behind them, the campaign teams are quite actively uh, spreading disinformation. So that's sort of then reading about in the report about how the, um, uh, the ITE law, the um, electronic transaction law, for example, is being used uh, to go after government critics um, there's been a lot of information about this over the last few years, and it's painted a picture of the Jokowi government as being increasingly repressive, increasingly illiberal towards critics, uh, and often using allegations of misinformation against its critics in order to, um, to punish them. But what was interesting in the report was that there are actually also other efforts underway. And sometimes Jokowi and his government surprise us um, with, the, um, with some of the things that are going on. Um, just last month, actually, after the report was um, finished, he did say that um, he wants the police and the military to take a, a more 
um, a, a different kind of approach to implementing that infamous ITE law, um, that he's concerned about um, the misuse of the law. And, and then the police chief even issued a directive where he said, uh, we want to engage with misinformation, disinformation more through mediation rather through punishment. So that came kind of surprising against the background what's been happening in the last couple of years or a bit more than that under the Jokowi government. But we'll have to wait and see whether um, that will actually be put into practice. But at least the rhetoric here was a bit surprising. And then going back to the report, um, as it outlines, for example, what's happening behind the scenes in terms of fact-checking, in terms of um, collaboration between government um, agencies and NGOs, um, still limited, of course, could, could be much improved, but at least there are some efforts underway um, in terms of capacity building, digital literacy, etc. So there's actually quite a, yeah, a multi-pronged approach in place, and not all of that is so well known, I suppose. Um, so in that sense, I think the report really um, painted a very yeah, comprehensive picture of the various efforts that are going on in Indonesia. And your area of expertise, I mean, you have focused a lot on democracy and political parties in Indonesia. So going back to that kind of trend around whether Jokowi's sort of um, taken Indonesia into a more illiberal direction, uh, one of the issues is, I guess, trying to understand the effect that these sorts of regulations and laws have on different types of democracies because states such as Indonesia, and it has been, uh, it was raised by Andrea earlier, um, states, democracy in Indonesia means quite a different thing. It doesn't really fit into the Western liberal democratic mode. So, I mean, do you think we are witnessing a decline in democracy in Indonesia more, more generally? Is this a part of a broader trend? And how... Uh, how easy is it to actually make a comparison between uh, laws that are implemented in, in Singapore, uh, which is a competitive authoritarian regime, you might call it, rather than a democracy, and in Indonesia, which is, you know, an illiberal democracy, and then taking that and using it to try and understand how uh, these regulations might undermine a democratic political system? Yeah, um, yes, there's a lot in that question. So maybe starting uh, with the part whether the quality of democracy in Indonesia has been declining and how the whole issue of uh, misinformation and disinformation fits in there. Um, yeah, I think the trend is unfortunately quite clear um, over the last five years or so, whether you read the fine-grained, detailed ethnographic reports of the state of democracy by the experts, or whether you go to the sort of comparative democracy indexes uh, published by the Economist Intelligence Unit or by Freedom House, whatever you read, you will the, the narrative will be sort of the same. That's starting around 2014, 2015, basically roughly when Jokowi came to power, um, that the quality of democracy started to decline, and. In, it can, in fact, be linked. I wouldn't say that misinformation, disinformation is the key element in that, but it is a little mosaic stone in that development. And if we go back to 2014, when Jokowi won his first election, misinformation sort of became uh, 
sort of prominent in that election for the first time, I suppose, when Jokowi's opponent in that election, Prabowo Subianto, uh, challenged the election result and claimed that he had actually won it um, based on fake um, uh, exit polls. So starting from there onwards, it became increasingly mainstream, so to speak, in electoral politics in Indonesia to spread lies and disinformation about opposing candidates. So that in itself, of course, has an impact on the sort of the integrity of the electoral process. Therefore, it is directly linked to the decline in democratic quality. But it's also the, the nature of the disinformation that is being spread. Um, in Indonesia, there are, maybe if we take the last election in 2019 as a starting point, there were sort of three main themes, I would say, um, that that appeared as, as constant narratives in, in terms of disinformation. Um, one was about the religious piety of certain candidates. Um, so Indonesia has seen a trend towards growing religious conservatism for many years now, and religion plays an increasingly prominent role in politics and including in elections. And so the religious credentials of candidates are often directly attacked or undermined um, in electoral campaigns. That was visible in 2019 when um, Jokowi's religious Islamic credentials uh, were openly challenged through um, you know, spreading uh, fake news about um, him. But it's also even at the local level, in local elections at the provincial or at the district levels that um, religious tensions are often deliberately fanned. And that is dangerous uh, for social cohesion. And we have in fact seen growing polarization along both religious as well as political viewpoints in Indonesia in the last few years. Um, so religion is one thing. Then there is the old um, legacy of Indonesian politics from the 1960s. Um, communism remains banned in Indonesia. And in every election, you will find um, misinformation about candidates' alleged links with the Communist Party, or you know, which has, of course, been banned in Indonesia for decades. Um, and that is uh, quite sensitive um, because these kinds of um, attacks often still find a very receptive audience in Indonesia. Um, Anti-communist sentiment is still very widespread, and therefore it's not surprising that this pops up over and over again. And the third um, is especially since the um, since 2016, 2017, when there was a governor election in the capital of Jakarta, and there was widespread anti-Chinese sentiment against one of the candidates who was of an uh, ethnic Chinese background. Uh, since then, I mean, the ethnic Chinese have faced discrimination um, and intolerance in Indonesia for for since colonial period, basically. Um, but in recent years, this has really intensified in the context of misinformation and disinformation. And if you want to link that now to the COVID-19 period, when COVID um, entered Indonesia, initially, there were many conspiracy theories about how that is linked to China, whether that was punishment for the Chinese because, they, because of their treatment of the Uyghur in China, or whether that was actually... Um, a, a leaked biological weapon that came out of a Chinese lab, 
Um, and there have been many other sort of disinformation campaigns against China over the last few years um, that Chinese workers are brought into Indonesia to work on the infrastructure projects there and that ultimately China wants to control the Indonesian economy, etc. So all this has implications for the quality of democracy in Indonesia and all these factors explain why virtually every analyst these days sees um, democracy in Indonesia in decline. So I didn't have a chance to um, comment on the comparison with Singapore, but I might leave it there for now. <laughs> That's fine. We might get back to that uh, issue a little bit later. Uh, but we are approaching the Q&A section. Please put your questions into uh, the Q&A box. Uh, and before we get to Q&A, I will ask Andrea. Uh, we were going to be joined by Kirsten Hahn, who is a, a journalist based in Singapore. And I was going to ask her this question, but I thought I might uh, give it to you, given that you did interview a number of journalists for this report across Southeast Asia. What do the laws and regulations mean for media freedom and the capacity of journalists to do their job, which is, you know, to hold governments to account? Thank you, Beck. Uh, and thanks to James and Dirk. Fascinating um, conversation there. And um, what, can I just pick up on one thing that um, James and I think Dirk touched on as well, and that's the weaponization of fake news by politicians themselves, which uh, also happens in liberal democracies, in liberal and liberal states are both um, guilty of doing this. Um, and much of this, of course, was because of the popularization of the term fake news by Trump, um, which has had a contagion effect right across the world where Anything that a politician doesn't like or that they want to delegitimise gets labelled as fake news. And other work that I've done um, with colleagues in 2018 really showed that contagion effect is happening in Australia as it is elsewhere. And a, a modern example of that was Craig Kelly, who was a member of the Liberal Party, who was spreading um, very close to the wind, almost anti-vaccination propaganda, who uh, had party pressure and is now... Um, gone to sit on the back on the cross benches, um, but has not pulled back from some of his commentary and will readily label journalists as fake news if they call him out on that. But to your, I guess that speaks also to the question that you're asking about what's the effect on journalists? Well, the big effect when this political weaponization is that they um, get marginalized. And the delegitimization of, de of the mainstream press has been a really big problem in the US um, where it's had an impact and there's studies that have shown this directly on the public's trust in journalists. And that's a problem for all of us because if the sense makers and the gatekeepers of information are not trusted, then we end up um, and many studies have shown this, the Pew Research Centre, um, the Oxford um, Centre sponsored by Reuters that also has relationships with the University of Canberra in Australia, has shown that Australians like Americans are, are find it difficult to discern fact from fiction, that everyday facts um, or events have question marks around them, which ultimately to this idea of an epistemic crisis about how do we know what's real and what isn't. And it also leads to media polarisation where you have echo chambers 
of the public staying within the media that they think they can trust and not venturing outside it. And in places like the US where you've got very partisan journalism, that's also problematic. So it exacerbates these problems rather than um, helps for uh, more pluralist and open debate that strengthens discourse. In terms of Singapore and Indonesia, the journalists that I interviewed, and I need to thank the wonderful people who allowed me to interview them, from fact checkers to editors to journalists to human rights activists to um, civil society workers, and um, I imagine there's some that are listening to this now, and the report would not be as rich with content if it were not for people being so generous with their time. And also Dirk sitting beside me who cast his eye over it and um, really add depth to some of the chapter content on Indonesia and Singapore. So I thank you too, Dirk, and my um, colleague, my research assistant, Liam Fallon. But the types of things that the journalists reported was that it makes you second guess yourself. It has a chill effect, uh, especially if you're a freelance journalist. If you get pothmed, as it's called, there's fines attached to that. And um, freelance journalists don't necessarily have the money to pay for those fines. And the appeal process also costs money. So it means that some reports um, that are difficult to verify, especially if they're really sensitive issues, such as what happens um, during executions in Singapore, um, unless you've got two sources or you might be hesitant about putting really important public interest information into the public sphere for fear of being accused of being um, fake news. And James um, uh, spoke of this, governments in Indonesia and Singapore uh, put themselves as both the arbiter deciding what is fake news and also um, the enforcer. And that creates a really difficult problem because fake news is what they determine it to be. So then you get this surreal um, Orwellian world where what is fact is deemed not to be fact. So there is a chill effect. Um, it can uh, also perversely limit the quality of public debate because you've got politicians who are also being targeted uh, so you're not getting that typical role of an opposition. You're only getting one um, viewpoint putting out that lack of pluralism means that the civic discourse isn't occurring that is necessary to furnish a strong public debate. The idea that the strongest ideas come to the fore, that contest of ideas to um, let the strongest ideas win out. Um, journalists have also been intimidated uh, through the threat of fines and through the threat of jail terms, which occur in both Indonesia and Singapore. Um, there's been, as James mentioned, blackouts in Indonesia where Tempo, for example, has done some wonderful investigative journalism, independent reporting, and may find that they get bot activity afterwards that um, attacks their IT systems uh, or lose their internet connectivity. So there's these other mechanisms um, that are used um, to, to try and counter some of the independent work that journalists are doing. Terrific. Thank you, Andrea. I see that the questions are coming in thick and fast. Before we get to them, I just because you mentioned the chill effect, Andrea, and you're talking about how this affects journalists, James, your centre... Uh, you know, is really um, focused on civil society activism. So I want to ask you the same 
question. Is, is there a chill effect when it comes to civil society advocacy and these laws and regulations? Thanks, Beck. Um, I think in the, in the past, I think both civil society and, you know, other actors working for, you know, political change, uh, democratic transitions had to deal with, you know, uh, propaganda, um, political propaganda, negative campaigning. I recall, you know, even 12 years ago, sitting in Melbourne, watching TV, uh, cringing as it was the feeling, you know, the political ads, you know, it was a good watch. It was uh, quite nasty, even. but now it's different. Everybody's lying and lying is okay. So, uh, so civil society equally are caught in the crossfire. And to some extent, I think civil society also, you know, uh, pockets of them, not all of them, trip into, you know, uh, also calling out their yeah, political opponents' names and because you, you need efforts uh, uh, to mobilize. So if I can give a, an example, just two days ago coming out of Thailand, you know, uh, so a couple of journalists, you know, um, standing in front of uh, the Prime Minister Prayut, you know, um, asked him some difficult questions. And his response was just to take up the um, uh, hand sanitizer spray and just spray, spray, spray the journalist and say he wants to disinfect himself from this probing question from journalists and then he walks away. So that's the kind of, you know, treatment and laissez-faire approach governments and key political leaders are taking vis-a-vis -vis journalists, civil society actors who will ask them the hard questions and, you know, seek the truth. So we might turn to Q&A. Uh, Andrea, this one is a bit of a curly one for you. I know this is something that you have thought of, thought about and sort of grappled with in your research, but uh, it's from Marie and she asks, interested to know whether accepting Facebook for the research grant for Dr Carson's report caused any concerns or potentially different approaches. And I would sort of add on to that. I mean, there, there is kind of the issue of, whether these corporations are capable or responsible enough to self-govern or whether a voluntary code of conduct is really going to compel them to be responsible actors when it comes to misinformation and fake news. Thanks, Beck, and thank you for the question. I think it's a really important one that academic research must be ethical and it must be independent. Um, one of the things in considering when I was given a Facebook um, research gift, which uh, was to make sure that under the contractual agreements, the design of the research and um, the conduct of the research was completely free of Facebook um, interference uh, and to have that contractually written into the gift. This is something that um, Facebook and Google and other organisations do across the world is um, put work into academic research. And I think that's really important. And it's one of the recommendations that's come out of the numerous reviews with the EU that um, academics need to be able to be involved to be able to see what work Facebook and Google are doing and the other big tech companies so that it can be scrutinised. And one of the benefits that I had in being able to um, do this project, and I must say as a political scientist, my first judgment is, is it research I would do anyway? And in this case, absolutely it is because I researched that intersection of media and politics. 
Um, but it gives me access to the platform policy makers who are deciding the things that we're talking about. They, those that are deciding their definitions of misinformation and disinformation. And I think it's really important that that component is included in the interviews that I'm doing to be able to see how the platforms, particularly Facebook, which is one of the largest of them, does deal with these issues. Um, as to the second part of your, and, and I also think it's really important to declare these things. Mm -hmm. Academics need to avoid a perception of conflict of interest and also to avoid conflicts of interest. So that's why I'm always clear to say that uh, it was through a Facebook um, grant that I was able to employ a research assistant to assist me to be able to do this research in a timely fashion because it's a pretty fast-moving space. The second part of your question, Beck. Um, was around, can you? Whether or not um, social media companies can self-regulate or whether actually governments do need to step in yeah. uh, to deal with the issue. Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? Um, the EU's had their disinformation code since 2018. They have said some, they've done numerous reviews of this, both independent and in-house, and some of this I've included in the report and they find that the areas where the, and it's not just Facebook, it's the other platforms, um, where they fall down is bringing academics in, transparency over their algorithms, um, some advertising transparency. And the EU has now signalled that it's going to move towards mandatory co-regulation. Australia is a little bit behind this, having just introduced its um regulation of misinformation and disinformation and at the moment it's a voluntary space but it has learned from the EU and its multiple reviews and has implemented that there needs to be regular reporting back to see whether the different digital platforms are achieving what they need to achieve and I think the first one's due in May, May or June this year which is only a few months after it's got up and running and the ACMA, which is the regulator, the Australian um, Communication Media Authority, has left the door open that if they find the platforms are not meeting the remit of which they need to under the uh, regulatory code, that it will go to co-regulation as well. So it's a space to watch. There's a lot of criticism of how the platforms have handled not just this problem, but um, other problems of transparency. And I guess a lot of the laws are outdated as well. Uh, the laws around regulating news content are 20th century laws. So there is a catch-up that's occurring in this space. And I would also add that it's not just platforms that are disseminators of fake news. Uh, mainstream media, uh, established media and legacy media also inadvertently or deliberately also engage in spreading falsehoods. And I think um, if we're going to tackle it as a society, we need to have a holistic approach to tackling fake news. And a good example in Australia, which um, maybe some of our overseas watchers won't be as familiar with, was a death death tax campaign um, that happened in the 2019 election where the incumbent said that the Labor Party in opposition was going to introduce a death tax and inheritance tax 
And despite the protestations that from the Labor Party that this was a falsehood, that story had enormous currency over two years. And a study that we've done to track that showed that it was not just spread online through the digital platforms, but also in the mainstream um, news outlets, particularly the Murdoch tabloids. In fact, they um, probably amplified that story more than what we saw online, but it was in concert. It would um, the story would be online. It would be picked up as being an online story by the mainstream media, and then um, it would be picked up again and go back online. So it was bouncing between the two different spheres, and and that's something that I think legislators need to address, which is difficult to do when they were the original purveyors of the fake news story to start with. So. Um, it's a complex space it, and that's why it needs a multi-pronged approach and it needs all stakeholders involved. Well, just as a follow-up um, from what you've just said, Andrea, in terms of a, you know, a multi-pronged approach, uh, there's also a role for individuals here and issues around media literacy. Could you briefly comment on uh, you know, how do we improve people's, individuals' capacities to recognise disinformation, misinformation and fake news? I'm always a little bit reticent on this one because um, even the most experienced in media literacy uh, can get caught up in fake news. And there's this great app that American University developed, which um, is much like Tinder, where you swipe left or right as a test to see whether it's fake news or not. And I remember when I first tried this app, I got 60%, which is somewhat embarrassing given that I've spent 15 years as a journalist and then um, teach journalism. So I, I think it goes to show that discerning what is fake news and, and not when it's, when you've got people out there with an intent to ensure that it passes off as real can be really difficult. However, having said all of that, there is obviously a role for media literacy and digital literacy. And Indonesia has... Um, a motto, this is a paraphrase, but it's something like think twice um, before you send, to really think through uh, whether you want to share it, have you read it through properly, do you understand what it is before you start sharing it, and also um, to not allow our personal networks to be manipulated. And here's a real problem with WhatsApp, which is behind closed doors, it's encrypted technology, it's not so easy for um, the platforms to go in and signal that this is fake news because of that encrypted technology. And we trust our peers, we trust our friends and family, and they may be inadvertently sharing fake news with us. So um, there are uh, many programs that can get us thinking about, is it a credible source? And there's some tools, I know Facebook has listened to some of the experts in this field and now has an information button on their story. So you can see who is behind the story? Is it a credible news outlet? Um, and you can read more about it. So I think it's incumbent upon us before we share to make sure we know what we are sharing, um, just as a basic first step. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, Dirk, I might uh, direct the next question to you. It's from uh, one of our participants asks, can governments be trusted on the AstraZeneca vaccine? But I actually want to extend that question a little bit because there is a good point here um, to, to sort of to, to be to be exp 
examined. Uh, and I know that you have been looking at the COVID-19 uh, experiences and responses in Southeast Asia. I mean, when we talk about um, the importance of information and about trust in institutions, do governments like Indonesia deserve to be trusted on their COVID-19 response? Is part of what they're doing trying to clamp down on criticisms of the some of the failures to adequately respond to this health crisis? Jack? Oh, he's frozen, I think. Are you with us? I can. Is it? I could hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. Go yep. for it. I'm on campus. If I freeze here, then. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for adding to it. So I might skip over the question. No. <laughs> About AstraZeneca. <laughs> um, uh, well, look, um, I, I'm originally from Germany. Germany has halted um, the AstraZeneca vaccine um, for, I think, two weeks now to wait for some more results or so. But, um, well, the WHO has put out some numbers of how many vaccines of that um, brand have been administered and how many um, potential uh, side effects have been recorded. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm... I, ha I have put my faith in the medical experts here in Australia. And if I was living in Germany, I would do the same. Um, but I would also say that um, governments in this case have probably erred on the side of caution. Um, I think they will most likely pick it up again soon. Um, so um, I'm not a medic medical expert, so I'd rather listen to them. Um, the Indonesian government does not always listen to its medical experts uh, to um, create a segue to the other part of your question. Um, so the problem with the, you know, the information from the Indonesian government about uh, vaccination or handling COVID in general is that um, several members of the government have spread information that was, yeah, controversial at best, laughable at worst, um, about potential remedies against COVID-19, uh, which um, of course undermine trust in the government response from the start. Um, some of you may here in the audience may have read some of the proposals by government ministers that praying might help or being out in the sun might help. Um, so if you hear this from representatives of a government, um, then of course there is always the risk that when they then come with medical advice that you don't trust that either, right? Um, so I think the Indonesian government had has struggled with that from the start, that it lacked a, um, a, you know, a well-informed response um, to the, um, to the um, coronavirus. And now that it comes to vaccination, of course, as I mentioned earlier, in Indonesia, there's often sort of underlying political currents that inform, you know, debates that on issues that seem unrelated. But Indonesia is using one of the Chinese vaccines and with all the um, anti-Chinese sentiment um, that is very widespread in Indonesia, um, that then of course mingles with suspicions about taking a vaccine. 
So given that Indonesia has 90% Muslims, uh, many Muslims were concerned whether the vaccine was um, halal, so whether it was okay for them to take. Uh, so the highest Islamic authority in the country came out to state um, that, yes, the vaccine is, you know, from a religious point of view, okay to take. But that then only addressed one part of the problem, right? It did not address the issue of that it's coming from China and that people may not want to take it because of that. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think in, in, in the bigger context there, I, it's, it's understandable that a lot of Indonesians have concerns um, or do not trust the government advice on the handling of the pandemic or the vaccine. Andrea, I think that you might want to, you wanted to add uh, a response to that question as well. Oh, it's okay. I'm happy to go to the next. I, okay. I think Jake covered it well. No worries. Well, the next question is from uh, Supreme Leader of the Head of Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy, James Leibold, who says, excellent discussion. Thank you, James. Uh, I'm going to pass this question. I'm going to, I'm actually going to give all our panellists a go at this question because I think it's very important, but I'm going to start with you, James. And the question is, I would like to ask about how we balance a universalist versus particularist approach to fake news. Facebook has recently sought to establish a so-called Supreme Court to adjudicate what gets taken down on its platform, but has also come to realise these decisions about what is misinformation, disinformation needs to be culturally contextualised. If we move towards regional or cultural-based decisions of fake news, do we give up on a universal idea of free speech, hate speech, misdisinformation? Wouldn't this give authoritarian regimes a free pass? So, James, I'll, I'll ask you uh, that question first. Yeah, uh, thanks, Becky. It's pretty complex, but I will try to have a go at it uh, in terms of uh, where I'm sitting and the kind of partners we have, most of it from civil society. If we just remark specifically on Facebook and the action it has been taken, taking, you know, in different jurisdictions uh, in the last six months, uh, that's actually coming from the back of over five, six years of advocacy on the part of civil society, you know, um, getting Facebook and other social media company, you know, representatives to the table, attending meetings, uh, urging them, begging them to take very, very, uh, you know, difficult and, you know, um, violence-provoking posts. Uh, if you look uh, just a few years back, uh, the, the kind of things that were coming out of, you know, social media handles in Myanmar against the Rohingya, it was just atrocious. So fast forward now, including, you know, Twitter taking down handles of the military um, information operations uh, group, uh, you see that that doesn't come overnight. It took, uh, you know, quite a few years of uh, advocacy and exposing the behavior of the tech companies because ultimately they are businesses. And if you sit across them on the table, you know, they are all interested in trying to have connections straight up to the government and have conversations there. Um, so, um, so that's kind of, you know, uh, my take from the, from the operational point of view. Um, so the, on the debate about universalistic and, uh, you know, uh, particular, um, I, I, I find it then difficult to apply this to a private company. I, I think 
for me, where, you know, uh, I would apply this is really in the uh, realm of national and international law. If you look at existing, you know, fake news laws and also COVID-19 laws, the discussion always has been whether these laws can be aligned with the international standards and aligned to the international obligations, and treaty bodies and um, other, you know, special procedures that, you know, governments have either agreed to or signed up to. And you will find there is a disjuncture. You will find there is a rhetoric of wanting to align with international standards and obligations. And when you call them out, uh, they will specifically say, oh, you look, our national laws align with the constitution. But the constitution is out of whack uh, to international standards. So, so for me, I think I will kind of unpack James's, you know, uh, question and, and sort of address it, you know, in these two pockets. What's your take, Andrea? I mean, this is a sort of super thorny issue. Yes, I think um, James asking the question gets right to the nub of uh, almost um, a, a tension that's very difficult to resolve. And that is, on one hand, you've got international standards um, that the UN um, oversees that we... Um, especially uh, the Western values of which companies like Facebook come from, um, want to adhere to. But you also need to understand local context, otherwise the measures put in place in some of those countries um, will be fruitless. And I'll give an example of Indonesia where definitions of pornography in Indonesia are really different to definitions of pornography in Australia. So the platforms need to be sensitive to the cultural context of pornography there and what might be um, considered offensive content in Indonesia may not be considered offensive content in Australia. So there needs to be some cultural context, but um, James is quite right, that should not be a free pass to bypass um, immutable international standards that uh, we as a global citizenry should be aspiring to. On the question of the Supreme Council, I think this is also really problematic. Um, Facebook on one hand is trying to have an arm's length approach. I think they're the only ones that have got the council, have this arm's length approach to decide what is missing disinformation or what gets taken down. But with that needs to be transparency so that the public can see how that decision-making process has taken place and also to ensure it's not discretionary, that if the we need to know what the credentials are of those who sit on this council, how they're remunerated, what relationship they have with the platform company, when they come to a decision, how they come to a decision and whether it's enforceable, whether the company has any discretionary power to then go against it. Um, and I think these are all issues that have uh, that need to be thought through carefully in appointing who's on that um, grand council and have some sort of process um, that uh, there's replenishment that occurs as well. So you don't get uh, entrenched positions or um, the possibility of um, corruption occurring within that arm's length board. I guess if I was to draw a parallel, you don't want governments making those decisions. Uh, you always want it to be at arm's length, uh, whether it's a statutory authority, 
authority in the state sense. And I think you want a similar arm's length approach with Facebook, but we don't know that unless there's transparency around those appointments um, and how the decision's being made. So, Dirk, I, I might turn the conversation to you. I mean, do you see that there might be a danger in, uh, in, in cultural or, or regionally-based decisions about what constitutes fake news might actually give authoritarian regimes a free pass? I think... The question also ties into uh, what, we're, what we were talking about a bit earlier in terms of also the different forms of democracy. Um, and, you know, you've got Western liberal democracies, but there isn't a universal kind of idea of what democracy means. So what's your view on this issue? Yeah, look, um, I think what James and Andrew have already said um, is uh, very important, um, that I think to some extent cultural context does need to be considered. Um, I wouldn't even, you know, say that it only needs to be cultural context. I mean, there's also political context even between liberal democracies. If we think about how different Western liberal democracy, for example, handled um, denying the Holocaust, right? Um, there are very different limits to freedom of speech between different countries there. And I think that does need to be um, considered. Of course, we, we would like to say that, yeah, well, within a liberal democracy, that's all still within the rule of law and all good and well. And it becomes more tricky when it's between contexts that are, you know, in less free societies. And yeah, there is the risk that authoritarian regimes, I think, can exploit that space to their, um, to their own benefit. Um, but I think we also need to consider the sort of the, the, the quantitative context. Um, I only know numbers for Indonesia um, and the report, Andrew's report actually alerted me to that. But the number of posts or accounts that I actually closed is at least at the moment, very, very small. Um, so Indonesia has some, I think, 140 or 150 million Facebook accounts. And um, the report quotes the number of 170 accounts taken down in the second half of 2019. Uh, when I looked up that link, um, that number increased quite significantly in 2020 after the, the report was written, which was interesting. There were more than 600 then. Um, so indicates that apparently in the context of COVID, um, there was a lot more disinformation that Facebook deemed worth removing. But still, within the bigger picture of the number of Facebook users in Indonesia, it seems a very, very small number of accounts where this Supreme Court, whether it's not culturally placed in Indonesia or universal, where it actually acts. Um, so in, you know, if we keep those numbers for context, then maybe I'm at least at this point not so worried about that council. Now, Andrea, I might pose a couple of questions to you uh, now. One is from Claire who asks about where you might place Trump's social media postings in terms of fake news. Uh, and the other question is about what journalists might be doing to create a climate of mistrust in a liberal democratic country uh, and how might this problem be rectified? Both good questions. Um, Trump's an interesting one because it wasn't until 2016 when he was the president-elect that he started 
accusing journalists of being fake news. And to begin with, um, the media, well, in some ways they made Trump because when he was one of um, more than a dozen primary candidates and after spending 12 years in the American lounge room with The Apprentice where people already were familiar with him, he was seen as entertainment value and he got a lot of media as a consequence of that. He was outspoken and outrageous and he was just good copy as we'd like to say in the newsroom. And he was taken as a bit of a joke. Journalists didn't really think that he was going to get um, a, win the primary race. And it was when he won the primaries that um, I was working at Melbourne University at the time and we got a Washington Post correspondent out, Dana Milbank, and he gave an address um, at the university, a town hall-style address, and said that they took too long to wake up, that he was... That what they were considering was entertainment. Um, it didn't have the normal checks and balances that journalists would put in place. That in that process, it gave what um, we call earned media to Trump. He didn't have to pay for advertising because he was getting so much copy through that. Um, so journalists were a little bit late to recognize that, uh, to call out the mistruths of Trump and instead of seeing it as entertainment. And similarly, the platforms have done um, a similar thing where uh, at one point their policy was that by definition a political actor could not be an inauthentic actor and that even if they spout mistruths, because they're a political actor, um, and this goes to James's point, there's an acceptance that they all lie and therefore it's not the role of the platforms to call that out. Well, we saw in the lead-up to the 2020 election how dangerous that can be with Twitter finally taking a stance and taking down um, or de-platforming Trump, Facebook following through, uh, and we also saw the real-world harm that can be caused by some of that rhetoric um, with the Capitol Hill riots. So would the original question was, is what um, Trump does fake news? At times, absolutely. And it took a long time for those re the reasons I've outlined for both the media and for um, the platforms to call that out. And um, unfortunately, it's had a real contagion effect across the globe. The second question was the role that journalists themselves play. I, I think I've touched on this a little bit um, with being slow to pick up on the, the real world harm that's done with Trump, but also the polarisation that the 20th century idea of objectivity in journalism is pretty much dead, I think, at least in the US. In Australia, there's still some semblance of impartiality, but we often see in news copy um, opinions woven in. It's not the inverted triangle that it once was, which was the who, what, where, when, and then backed up with quotes as the evidentiary basis for the piece. Now it has interpretation, which borderlines on being opinion and it's unclear whether it's journalist's opinion or whether it's the media outlet's opinion. And this is problematic because audiences um, have a predilection for certain types of media. They get comfortable with that media that gives them a particular worldview. And some research we found, um, successive research in 2020, looking at COVID, comparing the US and Australia, was just how polarised the American audience was, that when it came to COVID, um, 
you had Democrat supporters reading the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, and you had Trump supporters that were inclined to go to Fox News and Breitbart, and there was no cross-pollination at all in Australia, and this is thanks to a national broadcaster, I think, and there's studies that show this, that where you have a national broadcaster, you have a mitigating effect against polarisation because of their role in creating a national conversation and of being a, um, uh, in the words of Benedict Anderson, creating an imagined community across a country. We didn't see the same degree of polarisation, but there's a warning there. There were still elements of polarisation. So while Australian audiences in their news diet, and we asked them what they would consume in their top five each day, we would see a bit of Murdoch papers, bit of the ABC, bit of Facebook um, in that top five. But in the US, we saw the top five, if you're a Trump supporter, it was firmly on the right side. If you were a Democrat, it was firmly on the left. And there was very little, there was twin peaks, very little crossover between those two twin peaks. Whereas in Australia, there was elements of that, but there was still some cross-pollination. And I think that's a warning to Australia that uh, we need to preserve our plur plurality uh, and try and resist some of that um, dogma that creeps into reporting. I might ask you, James, to, to respond to some of what um, Andrea has just said. Uh, I was a journalism student at Monash University when you were a lecturer there, um, sadly, many years ago, and fondly remember the inverted triangle. Uh, do you agree with this uh, assessment that, you know, you've got this um, slippage between um, you know, what was hard news, fact-based hard news has sort of slipped into uh, more opinion-style journalism, that division is becoming much more blurred uh, and, and, and the sort of implications that this has for the quality of journalism. Yes, indeed. Um, I empathise uh, with the situation and, and, and because we have this situation, I think as part of the non-legal measures uh, in dealing with this uh, information, one of the things that you know many of us propose is a, a push and support for quality journalism. But that's a, a difficult push uh, simply because um, um, there's not enough resources to make media sustainable. So that's one challenge. Uh, media has become niche media. It's become propaganda media. So it is those who have the dollars, you know, who want to put a particular opinion and position out there that they quickly set up, you know, blogs and other types of platforms pushing out digital content. And I think that's that's what we are seeing. Even um, many media, and let me take, you know, for example, Jakarta Post or Bangkok Post uh, or Rappler in the Philippines, you know, um, they, they invite sometimes unsolicited opinion pieces as well. And, and if you look at that, some of that, you, you, you know, you wonder about the quality, even, even in that. So you see that, you know, um, some of these, you know, online media in order to survive will have to take in, you know, um, pieces gratis. And as a result, sometimes, you know, quality is uh, compromised. So I think that's, um, that's the challenge we are living in in contemporary time. So Dirk, I might ask you, uh, what has there been, has 
the de- a kind of decline in media standards or a decline in journalism standards, has that contributed, in your view, to the decline in democracy, quality of democracy in Indonesia that you were talking about earlier? Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, if I could just add, as James mentioned, uh, Rapala and the Philippines, what's perhaps worth noting in the context of the question about Trump that I think... Um, I read somewhere that Facebook actually regarded the 2016 election in the Philippines as the sort of the starting point of the systematic utilization of um, disinformation in the context of national electoral campaigns. So I don't know if Trump was paying attention to all what's happening in the Philippines, but in our region that we're talking about here in Southeast Asia, uh, some of the early pioneers of systematically using disinformation for political purposes um, are still in power and are still using it. So I just wanted to mention that. So the question about media, decline of media, well, in Indonesia, one big issue is um, there's a lot of um, online news um, services these days, and um, they are often not necessarily, um, the, the main problem is not necessarily that they just put out opinions or opinionated um, pieces, but rather um, they just um, reiterate what politicians or other opinion makers say without providing any kind of context. And often these statements are false and therefore um, this kinds of kind of disinformation emerges out of the either inability or lack of capacity, lack of time of journalists to actually provide a proper journalistic piece. Um, they are often under a lot of time pressure to you know, churn out a lot of articles in a day. Um, and that is, of course, in contrast to the sort of yeah, qualitative investigative media that we all cherish. Indonesia still has some really good journalism. Uh, Tempo magazine was, of course, mentioned in the report repeatedly. James mentioned the Jakarta Post. And even though they do um, struggle financially and therefore need to um, sometimes resort to this kind of um, Uh, opinion pieces with questionable content. Overall, I think Indonesia still does have some good quality journalism. Um, The problem is to get that word out to the masses because the masses don't read it. Um, It's often just for the sort of, you know, small urban elite with an interest Mm -hmm. in these kinds of issues. Um, But the greater reach is often through social media or through um, low quality journalism. And yeah, that of course then uh, feeds into the kinds of issues that Andrea discussed in the context of the US. Polarization is in Indonesia now also a real threat. For decades, I think people didn't really think about polarization in the context of Indonesia because it's so fragmented, so diverse. Um, there are not really two blocks in the country. Um, that's only emerged really in the last five years. There's many reasons for it. It has to do with the sort of institutional design that fostered um, sort of one-on-one contests in elections, which weren't there before. But it also has to do with the, um, yeah, the rising conserv- religious conservatism that is increasingly questioning the pluralist foundations of Indonesia. Um, and the media would have a role to play there in countering these narratives. Um, some outlets are trying very hard to do that, um, but there are also yeah, many others who are failing in their yeah, in their societal task and their civil society task, perhaps, um, to counter these um, polarizing narratives. Well, Can Andrea, I add one thing just briefly. Oh, go for it. Just, <laughs> just on that, um, 
Some of our research during COVID or during the pandemic found that actually news use had gone up in the US and Australia, and I know other studies have found this in other parts of the world, and trust had gone up for really established news brands. So those media outlets that were um, that had good reputations for not producing false content, uh, their usage really went up. And I think when it comes to a public really needing credible information because it can be a health outcome for them, um, we do see that the established brands that do have strong reputations benefit in that environment. That's really interesting. But, Andrea, I might give you the last question. Uh, you mentioned, this is from Elise, you mentioned earlier that the platforms tend to look at actors themselves in terms of inauthentic users. Do you agree that this usually results in users moving to a different, more private network? If this is the case, this reveals the pressing need to have the governments or indeed all stakeholders, as you mentioned, themselves involved. On the back of this, right-wing friendly apps such as Parler, now defunct, or Gab, allow for these fringe conversations to go on rather unregulated. Yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Um... Yes, it does push some of those fringe voices off into encrypted technologies such as Parler. Uh, WhatsApp's also problematic. I think it's heavily used in Spain and, in, uh, and India uh, and also the second most used platform in Indonesia where you can't see what's going on behind those um, encryptions, so therefore it's very hard to negate those messages. But is it a role for government to crack that encryption and to be able to call it out? Well, I would argue no, um, based on the findings of the report that I've just done, where you see the overreach of governments that use it for their own political purposes and to also shut down um, a, a freedom of speech. So we need to be very careful whose hands we put that in. And that's why I think a multi-pronged approach is needed where we empower the users and you do that through education. Um, there are measures that the platforms have put in place to try and deal with this. So, for example, in Indonesia, you can no longer share a post more than, I think it was five times, it might even be reduced down to two, and that is to stop this um, inauthentic behaviour of super posting and super sharing. Some businesses complained about that, especially small businesses, because that was how they were getting their messages out. So there's always winners and losers. But we need to look to multiple ways to address this, whether it's through technology, through education, through transparency, um, through calling things out. I wouldn't give that sort of power to governments alone. Well, I think that's all the time that we uh, have for this evening's session, but I would like to once again congratulate you, Andrea, on this very important report. Uh, and for our audience members, you can find that report uh, on the Latrobe Asia website. I would also like to, ah, here it is in print. Very nice. <laughs> uh, I would also like to thank Asia Centre for collaborating with Latrobe Asia on this event. Uh, and thank you to Dirk and to James for joining us this evening. And of course, to Andrea um, for writing the report and then for allowing us to, to launch it through this webinar this evening. I would also like to uh, thank the audience uh, for watching uh, this event. 
Uh, this webinar has been recorded. If you have registered for the event, you'll be emailed appropriate links when they are ready. Uh, our next scheduled webinar for La Trobe Asia is Modern Day Slavery and Human Trafficking in Asia, which will be aired at 4pm Melbourne time on 20th of April. Uh, and in the meantime, we have some fascinating Asia Rising podcasts coming up soon. Uh, so please do follow us uh, on Twitter at La Trobe Asia. Also, follow Asia Centre on Twitter uh, on, or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and La Trobe Asia publications. Thank you very much. Thank you, Beck. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye.